Hello everyone, we're in Psalm 51. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. Uh, we do intend to go through the entirety of the Bible with time and through many, 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 many different topics. But today we have Psalm 51 that has 19 chapters for the choir director, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. This is the one of the most famous psalms. It is a psalm David wrote after Nathan confronted him for his sin with Bathsheba. We can read about this in 2 Samuel 11 through 12. After his confrontation, David cried out to God for forgiveness. The comfort in this psalm is that if David's sins could be forgiven, so could anyone else's, so long as they come to God in repentance. Verses 1 and 2. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David begins his psalm asking God for grace. He knew he did not deserve forgiveness. He had rebelled against God, yet he still pleaded for mercy and loving kindness. He appeals to God's compassion and asks for a grand thing, forgiveness. His sin is seen in three lights, transgression, rebellion against God, iniquity, perversion of what is right, and sin, missing the mark. In the same vein, he chose three ways that he desired that his sins be removed, blotted out, or debt of sin before God being paid for and erased, washed, the stain of sin on his soul that needed to be washed, and cleansed, the image of a ceremonial cleansing, like a leper cleansed from disease. Verses 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David knew his own sins. They were in front of his face, and there was no hiding or mistaking them. He knew they were sullying the beautiful relationship he had with God. Now this is extremely important. The principle is brought up in verse 4. When we sin, we sin first against God. He is the primary victim of our transgression. Could there be others that are sinned against? Yes, of course. But David had sinned against Uriah. He lied and took his wife and murdered him. Bathsheba, he lied, committed adultery with her, and took her to be his wife. And the nation of Israel and its leaders, who he lied to, manipulated, created a battle plan which lost the lives while aiming for Uriah. But God is the only one that is holy and the only creator of the universe. So first and foremost, when we sin, we sin against our righteous creator. Since we rebel against our creator when we sin, he is just in his completely pure and righteous judgment. Verses five and six. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. 
Another important principle here is the fact that all humans, other than Adam and Eve and Jesus, are born in sin. From birth, we are selfish creatures that want our desires to be met, first and foremost. This is not an excuse, however, just a statement of reality. Despite the way we were born, God still desires for us to walk in the truth. This truth can, and if we let it, does change us from the inside out. It also gives us wisdom to live our daily lives to His glory. Verses 7 through 9. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. David asks again for forgiveness, but in reverse order. Clean with hyssop, a symbolic in religious ceremonies to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the altar. Washing whiter than snow, white being the image of holiness or cleanliness before God, and blot out iniquities asking God to remove his sins. In forgiveness, there is joy. David mentions this joy and gladness. He mentions a time of mending. Interestingly, he asks for the bones which God broke to rejoice. This comes from a practice at the time used by shepherds. When a lamb would stray from the flock and the shepherd found it, he would break its leg with his staff as discipline. And then he would nurse the lamb back to health. This caused the lamb to stay by its shepherd's side. As Christians, we are not exempt from discipline from God. God can use very difficult situations to mold us and make us more like Him. He can also use difficult times to punish us for sinning against Him. Verses 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. He desires a new, clean heart, without stain or filth. With this clean heart, the psalmist would be able to experience the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not permanently reside in those who had, who had faith in God. He dwelt in a person to sustain them through a task or until the person sinned. In our time, because of what Jesus did, once someone is saved, the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence within the believer. John 14:16. While in sin, David was miserable, but he remembered the times of joy while he was enjoying God and his presence, and he desperately wanted those times back. David has been called a man after God's own heart, and the reason was because he thirsted after God himself. Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. David promised God several things in these next verses if forgiveness was granted to him. First, if God granted him forgiveness, he promised to teach sinners God's ways. He promised to tell others of the salvation he had received. A byproduct of God's forgiveness is the desire to tell others of it and to bring them to repentance. Verse 14 and 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. 
Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. The blood guilt he mentions here refers to sins where his blood would be due, sins for which the death penalty should have been carried out, adultery and murder. For his second promise, he says that if God would relieve him of his guilt, he would joyfully praise God for who he is. This is, again, <clears throat> a natural response to forgiveness. When forgiven, we desire to praise the one who forgave us. Sin always hinders genuine praise, because sin is an affront to the holy God. You can't curse God and praise him at the same time. Verses 16 and 17. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. While God had ordered sacrifices and offerings in the law for Israel, the material sacrifices were not the key element in God's desire for Israel. He wanted the sacrifice and offerings as a result of a broken spirit. A broken spirit is one that understands that it has offended God and is humbled by that understanding. These sacrifices were meant to be done with a repentant or forgiven heart. Anyone could just sacrifice something to God and go about their sinful way as usual. God wants a heart that chases Him, not a heart that simply goes through the motions. Sacrificing was to be an act of worship from a person's heart who desired to be settled with God. Now this is important. Why? Things have not changed that drastically for us today. In our time, God wants the same thing, our hearts and our worship. Our worship is useless if it is empty. If we come to Him with a repentant heart, asking for forgiveness, and then come to worship, then our worship is from the heart, and it honors Him. We must first come to God to cleanse our sins and acknowledge our, sin, our need of Him to save us. And we see this in 1 John 1, 7-9. Verses 18 and 19. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. In David's petition to God, David also asks for mercy and protection for Zion, the city of Jerusalem. Israel would then also offer sacrifices with the right heart, and this would be a delight to God, because worship would be done correctly for His glory. What an awesome psalm asking for forgiveness. When was the last time you asked for forgiveness? Remember, sin disconnects your relationship with God because He is holy. Is there something you need to resolve before you enter His presence with worship? If so, resolve that first so you can praise even more fervently and truly from the heart. Psalm 52, nine verses. For the choir director, a maskil of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. This psalm has to do with the time when Doeg betrayed David, 1 Samuel 21 and 22. <coughs> Doeg gave Saul information on David's whereabouts so that Saul could hunt him down. This caused the family of Ahimelech much death and sorrow. David compares a man of faith with this man of iniquity. 
Verse 1. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. The psalm starts with a question. Why is the prideful man boastful of his evil deeds? This boasting of evil was a direct affront to the love of God that is ever present. Verses 2 through 4. Your tongue devises destruction, like a sharp razor, a worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right, Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. This boastful sinner is quite a character. His words are like destruction, like a razor that cuts all things in its path. His words are full of deceit to fulfill his evil purposes. This man loves evil more than good and chooses to do evil over good. The wicked's values are completely distorted. They enjoy the twisted, the perverted, and the corrupt. Verse 5. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. God would judge such a one with a removal from his home or his tent and a swift death. The punishment would correspond to the sin. God will not forever tolerate evil. He will one day absolutely and completely deal with it. Verses 6 and 7. The righteous will see and fear, and will laugh at him, saying, Behold, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, and was strong in his evil desire. The righteous will see God's judgment, and be filled with awe and fear, but this changes to rejoicing. This joy is not malicious or vindictive. It is a praise that evil has been snuffed out. God has displayed his holy justice. The righteous know that this evil man had not sought God for his salvation or protection. This man put his trust on riches and sought after evil instead. Verses 8 and 9. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. And I will wait on your name, for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. In contrast with the wicked boastful man, the psalmist would have a different outcome in life. Since he placed his trust on God for salvation and protection, he would be like an olive tree, a common symbol of prosperity, longevity, and productivity, in the house of God, flourishing and growing. Notice the imagery used. David would become a strong tree, while the wicked man would be uprooted. David trusted in God completely. Between the psalmist's love of God and God's faithful love to those that love him, the psalmist was blessed. His thanks would be poured out for all time, and his hope would be solely on God. Where is your thanks and hope? Is it in God? Psalm 53, 6 verses. For the choir director, according to Mahalath, a masculine of David. This psalm is a version of Psalm 14. This apparently was placed here so that Book 2 could have the same psalm. The psalm is set to Mahalath, which is possibly a well-known tune. The psalm speaks of the wickedness of man and God's judgment, yet in this wickedness there is hope in God's promise of his kingdom. Verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. 
and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. The fool is defined by denying that there is a God. This fool is corrupt and does injustice. This fool is the entire human race. There are none that do good. We are all sinners from the very beginning of our lives. Verse 2 and 3. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. David describes God looking down at humanity to see if anyone would seek after him of their own accord, but none did. Every single human was sinful and seeking only their own satisfaction and goals. They had become corrupt. The word corrupt here is Allah, which means soured, like sour milk. Every single human is sinful, the only exception being Jesus. We are all sinful and all seek after our own desires. We do not seek God or goodness by default. Verses 4 and 5. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge who eat up my people as though they ate bread and have not called upon God? There they were in great fear where no fear had been. For God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. The wicked were and are completely ignorant of the true God. They simply did wickedness against the righteous. These same wicked would one day be fearful at the sight of God's judgment on them. God would judge them and scatter their bones. This final image is one of disgrace to the wicked and complete destruction. There is a sense of celebration because the wicked have been justly judged. This is still something we are waiting for. We still have wicked people, and they are still against God and his people. We rest in the same hope as the psalmist. God will one day judge. Verse 6. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores his captive people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Despite all this judgment, salvation was coming from Zion, or Jerusalem. A Savior was coming to restore his captive people, Jesus, the Christ. Because of this truth, Israel was called to rejoice and be glad. There will be a time in the future when God will restore all the righteous, remove all the wicked, and God himself will rule over us. How exciting that it will one day come and all will be set right in the world. Psalm 54 has seven verses for the choir director on stringed instruments, a mascal of David when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, Is not David hiding himself among us? This prayer or song is from David when the Ziphites betrayed him to Saul, 1 Samuel 23:19. This psalm is one of confidence that God will deliver. Verse 1 and 2. Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. The first of the psalm, the first part, is one of petition for deliverance. He calls on God to save him and to take refuge on his behalf. David wanted justice for his betrayal. Verse 3. For strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Selah. 
These men were trying to go against David. The Ziphites did not act like fellow men of Judah towards David. They betrayed him to Saul and his men who were seeking his life. These men had no regard for God or his ways. It was well known that David was to be the next king of Israel after Saul, yet Saul and his men still hunted him down, and the Ziphites betrayed the future king of Israel. Verses 4 and 5 Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense the evil to my foes. Destroy them in your faithfulness. Despite his circumstances, David trusted in God and in his plan. He knew God kept and sustained him. He was powerful enough to save him. He was also just and faithful. And so he would punish those that had done wrong against him. Verses 6 and 7. Willingly I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all trouble, and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. David had full confidence that God would hear his prayer and deliver him from his enemies. So he was ready to sacrifice and give thanks to God for his goodness. He was also praising God while still in the hard situation. He was confident that God would be just against his enemies and do what was best for him. With that knowledge, he could relax and return to praising God for his amazing salvation, promises, and character. Where are you placing your trust? In your own hands? If you are, know that compared to God, we have really small hands to handle our, all our situations. Instead, try placing your struggles in God's hands. He will do what is best for you and for His glory. Then you, too, can rest in His faithfulness. God has shown Himself to be loving and faithful. We simply need to trust Him in our situations and know that He will work everything out according to His perfect plan. Psalm 55, 23 verses. For the choir director on stringed instruments, a masculine of David. This psalm is about David's persecution because of the betrayal of a close friend. Some believe this person to be Ahithophel, 2 Samuel 15, 31, but it is not certain. In the psalm, David calls on God for deliverance and mourns being betrayed by his friend. Despite all this hurt and hardship, David still shows confidence in the God that never fails. Verses 1 through 3. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. The psalmist prays for deliverance because of the enemy surrounding him. He asks that God not hide himself from the petition that he was bringing forth. The enemy wanted trouble for the psalmist. They were acting in anger against him. From the psalmist's point of view, the Lord had not shown himself yet. He had not answered the prayer. This brought on deep despair. Verses 4 through 8. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, say law. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. Verses 5 through 
the psalmist had been reduced to horrible fear of death and trembling. He was weak and helpless, paralyzed by fright. He even daydreamed of being a dove and then just flying away from the whole situation. He would leave to a place far away and escape his circumstances. Verses 9 through 11. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around her upon her walls, and iniquity and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. The psalmist calls on God to send division and confusion on his enemy's plans to do hurt him. This confusion is reminiscent of the Tower of Babel, where God confounded the language of the people that were trying to make a name for themselves. The city, possibly Jerusalem, where they were full of violence, sin, mischief, oppression, and deceit. The city did not stop doing evil. It thrived in destruction. Sounds like a horrible city, but are our cities so different? I don't know. Verses 12 and 13. And 14. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. The worst part of all this was, it came by a betrayal of a friend. It was not an enemy who he expected hatred from. It was a close friend who had even worshipped God together with David in the house of God. Now this is important. Betrayal is hard. The closer the friend, the more deep the cut of betrayal is. Yet, despite betrayal, we can still depend on God. Jesus also went through betrayal by all 12 friends that had lived with him for three years. He was betrayed by one for the price of a slave and abandoned by the rest to die alone. He knows betrayal, so we can go to him with our heavy hearts. Verse 15. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to shale, for evil is in their dwelling, in their midst. David asks for justice, that they would have a swift death, and that death come without warning deceitfully. Going down alive to Sheol, or to death, is reminiscent of Korah and his followers being eaten by the earth in the time of Moses. You can read about that in Numbers 16, verses 30 and th through 33. Verses 16 to 18. As for me, I shall call upon God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me for they are many who strive with me. Despite the betrayal and the evil that surrounded him, the psalmist would depend on God for his salvation. He would call on God persistently and God would hear. God would give peace. Many were on his side. Some believe this many to be other faithful Israelites. Others give credit to the angels that are also part of God's, God's army. In either case, we can know that we are not alone. It is so incredible that we have a God that will listen to our prayers. We are not banging on the closed doors of a death-useless God. Our God is alive and wants to hear our petitions. Verse 19. 
God will hear and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from of old, Selah, with whom there is no change and who do not fear God. God would hear and respond to the injustices of the enemy, those that are against him, even earthly kings. They have no fear of God because their situation does not seem to change. They are unaware that their evil will one day be dealt with. God is not like man. Here's the source of hope. He is holy and just, so he must punish sin. He is also enthroned for eternity with no amount of time where he is not the king. He is the God who is immutable or unchanging. God would in his time humble them and bring them to justice. Verses 20 and 21. He has put forth his hands against those who are at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter. But his heart was war. His words were softer than oil. Yet they were drawn swords. The psalmist seems to return to the former friend that betrayed. There was no reason for the betrayal. The psalmist had done nothing. This man had broken the covenant of friendship. The traitor's words were pleasant, smoother than butter and softer than oil. These words were encouraging and seemingly sincere, but they were deceitful. Nothing more than words ready for battle, swords drawn and ready for the kill. Verses 22 and 23. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken, but you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Evil will one day be destroyed. Whether in this life or in the next, evil will be defeated. A premature death is what often awaits evil men. Their foundations are not stable at all. They can and will be shaken at any given second. Well, how does this apply to our lives? The psalmist calls on the reader to cast his burden on God because he will sustain the righteous. In other words, we should place our circumstances, trials, issues, and anything else in God's very capable hands. He will never forsake the righteous. Will there still be hard times? Yes. The promise here is not that we will not endure hard times. The promise is that we will have a strong foundation in God, even in the hardest times. He can sustain us in any circumstance as long as we place our burden on and trust in Him. Are you casting your cares on Him? Or are you trying to carry all your cares alone? When I was younger, I learned a song that directly has to do with this. So I am going to sing it. I cast all my cares upon you. I lay all of my burdens down at your feet And any time I don't know what to do I will cast all my cares upon you Hopefully it's a good reminder to put our cares and our circumstances and our anxieties, our worries on Christ. 